What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Firs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Sarah Alexander, Executive Director of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, where she advocates for organic agriculture, a healthy environment, local food production, and thriving communities. Previously, she was National Deputy Organizing Director at Food and Water Watch, working to plan and implement national and state-level food campaigns. She also started the online organizing department, directing their online campaigns, integrating fundraising and advocacy work, as well as managing coalition partnerships and outreach to new communities. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I usually start with the personal history. Um, where'd you come from? How'd you find your way down east? And what for? Yeah, thanks for having me. I grew up in Ohio in a rural part of the state and lived really close to the land in ways with my family that revolved around hunting and fishing and tromping around in the woods looking for mushrooms. And so I grew up with this appreciation for nature and the food that it could provide for us. And at the time, you know, growing up, of course, I took that for granted and didn't really think about what that meant. So were you a farming family? We were not. We were a couple of generations off the farm, but grew up surrounded by really corn and soybeans. And you didn't really see agriculture from a community perspective. You saw it as, yes, these are the fields that you drive by and those those are the barns that you drive by and you know there are animals in there. But there wasn't really a sense of community around the food system and agriculture and what people were producing. It was certainly part of the heritage and the identity of the rural area and the community that I grew up in, but it had already been industrialized to the point where farms had been consolidated and farms had gotten bigger and there were really not as many families farming on the land at that time. In the 70s, the farm policy really focused on getting big or getting out and growing up in the 80s in Ohio, during the, you know, one of the biggest farm crises that the country has seen, you know, a lot of farms were being bought out by larger entities or other farms. So the sort of family scale, small and medium sized farmers were really going out of business if they if they hadn't already gotten big, they were getting out. You know, that's a story that we see really carrying through all the way through today um, as agriculture in the U.S. really further consolidates a lot of the farm policies of the last um, 40 years have really encouraged that um, consolidation. So did you go to high school in, in that time? I did, yep. During that period of time, your friends were the children of farmers. Some of them were, yep. And what was that like? I mean, you weren't immune to it. The community well, it must have been affected in some way as this sort of long generational commitment fell, fell to pieces very, very quickly. Where did those farmers go? 
Well, I think they turn to other businesses and industries. And I think those kids that I was in school with, they knew that if they were still on the farm, if their family was still farming, that was not going to be their future. That was definitely the dominant feeling was, you know, get off the farm, get out, find another path, find another way forward. Farming was not viewed when I was growing up as something that um, you were going to get into, which I think um, we have seen some shifts in the last couple of decades. And certainly we'll talk more about that here in Maine. How'd you get out? Yes. Well, like a lot of rural kids, I could not wait to get out. I could not wait to leave my small town. All I knew was that I wanted to get as far away as possible. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up at Northwestern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always had this innate sense of justice, this sense of how we needed to change things and why, you know, why weren't things kind of happening the way that I thought they should be happening. And so After I quickly realized I was not going to stay on the law school trajectory, I got involved with a number of different organizations on campus that were really working for social justice. And through that, I got involved with a group that was focused on American Indian and Native American issues related to uh, the urban Indian population in Chicago and the issues around Native mascots. So the University of Illinois at that time had Chief Illiniwak, which is a Native figure as a mascot. And so working in coordination with the American Indian um, group in Chicago to protest mascots and then raise awareness around that on campus. And then that led me to getting involved with Winona LaDuke, who is a Native American activist, and she was the Green Party vice presidential candidate uh, with Ralph Nader. And... I led a spring break trip up to the White Earth Indian Reservation to volunteer with Winona's group. And while I was up there, the first night, you know, she had us all over. We were a group of about 15 students working in the maple sugar bush, hauling sap and helping chop wood and, you know, do whatever was needed to make the maple sugar bush work. So she had us all over and she asked if anybody knew how to sew. And one of the other benefits of growing up in a rural area was I was part of 4-H and knew how to sew and had spent all this time with my uh, grandmothers and my great-grandmother and learned lots of helpful rural skills like canning and food preservation and mending and, you know, all of these things. So I raised my hand. I was the only one who raised my hand that I knew how to sew. And she said, I've got a job for you. And she put me to work for the week sewing dresses that she was going to use for, you know, different powwows and and dances that she was a part of. And so I got to spend the whole week with her um, really in pretty close proximity. And she said, you know what, you're you're pretty handy. Why don't you come back up (laughs) this summer? And I went back up the following summer and worked for her and her nonprofit organization as a volunteer and an intern and wrote the first application for their farm to be certified organic Hmm. that summer. Isn't it wonderful to realize that you had the great fortune to run into a a really fine mentor, Mm -hmm. somebody who who just is real at the outset and um, uh, to be well-schooled and well-motivated in the issues that you're active uh, toward seems like a real chance a moment of great fortune. Absolutely. I've I've had many lucky moments throughout my 
career and time really getting involved in food systems. And um, I learned a tremendous amount from Winona and and developed a good uh, friendship and relationship with her to the point where, you know, the first time I went up there was my sophomore year spring break. And after that, I spent every break that I had at school going back up to White Earth Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. volunteer, to work with her, to help out in whatever way I could. But I was gaining so much education and awareness and knowledge. And her organization was really about land recovery, recovering the land base for the White Earth Nation so that they could provide sustainable economic development through food production, through restoration of traditional foods, through looking at, you know, the relationship and connection between food and health. I did a little bit of everything. I wrote grants. I wrote the organic certification. I helped out on the farm. I, you know, watched kids. I did whatever was needed, and I I learned so much. And it was really through that um, initial work with Winona that I really started to understand the political disparities in our food system, you know, the true inequalities and inequities in our food system. And at that time, you know, one of the big issues, so this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, in terms of globalization and World Trade Organization, and, you know, the genetically engineered crops were really starting to be patented and come about and more crops were being patented. And so, One of the things that really sparked with me initially in working with her was learning about the patenting of Mm -hmm. indigenous intellectual property around food systems and wild foods and traditional foods. And at White Earth, that one of their traditional foods is wild rice, which grows naturally on the lakes and rivers. It's, I mean, such an important part of the community in every aspect of the community, economically, culturally, spiritually. And as a nutritious food that's critical for for food sovereignty for that community, and there were efforts to patent information. You know, the wild rice had been domesticated through plant breeding at the University of Minnesota at the time. So there was a domesticated wild rice industry that was created that that really only exists in Minnesota and then California. And there was work to map the genome so that genetic engineering could be done. And I really had never thought about, one, taking such a culturally important food that grows in the wild lakes and rivers and streams and is abundant and is such a miracle of nature, right, that this food reseeds itself. It doesn't need any management, right? Think of all the effort and time in agriculture that goes into planting, cultivating, you know, weeding, uh, fertilizing, harvesting, processing food. And here's this natural food in abundance that if you take care of it, all you have to do is harvest it. What, a, what an amazing example of appropriation Mm-hmm. An indi- a, a food that is essential to an indigenous population diet, not only appropriated in the sort of ways that we understand appropriation, colonization and, uh, of land, but patented. Mm-hmm. I mean, patent is a, is, a, you know, is a function of ownership. And so when you're in a, in a society where ownership doesn't exist in the same way that it does in our culture, and then you come in and not only take the land— but you take the product of the land, and then over and above that, you patent it in some way as a kind of intellectual property commodity, which is uh, 
the ultimate appropriation, mm-hmm. if you will. Let me just ask one more thing, and, and we'll come to Maine. Um, uh, this phrase, food systems, can you just give me a little better definition of what that what that means? Yeah. Well, I think about that as everything that goes into getting food to our plate. Mostly I'm talking about agricultural production, not so much wild harvest or fisheries. You know, those certainly are part of the food system as well. But if we think about everything it takes to go from a seed to a loaf of bread on our table, right? Somebody has to grow it. Somebody has to harvest it. Somebody has to process it. Somebody has to distribute it, aggregate it, turn it into a food product, right? Add value to it. And then it's got to get to a grocery store or a farmer's market or somewhere where we're then going to purchase it, bring it home and, and consume it. And so every part of that system, you know, from growing something or raising, you know, livestock or chicken or, you know, depending on what you're talking about, like if you're doing dairy or meat, vegetables, fruits, everything from the start of what it takes to create that food, there are pieces and and parts of the puzzle every step along the way that critically impact how that's being grown, how it gets to us, Who's controlling that? What are the decisions that are made that ultimately for us as eaters, you know, determine what we have access to and what impact that's having on the world? Yeah, it's a, it's a system of value added and values taken mm. all along the way. It astonishes me that a loaf of bread costs as little, even if it costs mm-hmm. more today than it ever has, uh, how little it does cost when you consider the process that the whole thing has gone through from seed to, to the peanut butter sandwich. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors, artists, and exemplars who evoke the spirit of Maine. Broadcast the first Friday of every month here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM, streaming online and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Sarah Alexander, Executive Director of MAFCA, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, based in Unity, Maine. Were you aware of MAFCA before you I was, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, since working for Winona and, and being a community organizer, my, my background was around seeing problems in our communities and how do we bring people together to address those collectively. How do we fight for what we want our communities to look like? And since working for Winona, I've worked for, I think, five other nonprofits and a farm, getting experience in all of these different aspects related to our food system, whether it's urban agriculture or you know community gardening and growing through the American Community Gardening Association or working at the federal level on policies um, with a group like Food and Water Watch you know, working on the farm bill that comes up every five years, which is this massive piece of legislation that impacts everything that we eat, every aspect of agriculture, and the food security assistance program through the farm bill, which is about to come up again. Oh, yeah. God help us. <laughs> it's it's up right now. Yeah. It probably, I mean, you know, if anybody's got a crystal ball that knows when it will actually get passed, we'll, we'll take your predictions. But it was already supposed to have been passed this year, but because of how Congress operates these days, um, we'll be lucky if we see it next year. Before we get to MAFCA history, 
Can you tell me a, a little sense of what is the history of agriculture in Maine? I mean, it's a huge topic, I know, but can you distill out the various elements, which would be the kind of baseline that was was in place when, when Mofka was begun? Sure. And, I, you know, I think it's a great time to also just give some acknowledgement to the Wabanaki land management that's been here for 10,000 plus years before settlers, European settlers arrived and brought some forms of what we would consider agriculture. But, you know, the abundant food systems, I've, I've had the opportunity to hear and learn from um, some of our Wabanaki colleagues here in Maine about the really rich and abundant foodways and traditions that the Wabanaki have stewarded for millennia. There's so much to learn from that. And I think there's so much today to learn from returning land to Wabanaki stewardship so that we can return to some of those sustainable foodways as we think about how we're going to feed people. And Wild rice, we actually have wild rice in Maine as well, and it actually is a part of Wabanaki culture and heritage. However, the tribal nations here um, have very limited access because of the loss of land here within the state, and the management of those stands over time has gone by the wayside because of the dispossession of land and, and access to those resources. So the farming was what? Dairy? Blueberries? Yeah, historically, you know, I think... The sort of like New England small farm vision was a lot of subsistence farming in the 17 and 1800s. I mean, we see this in the landscape of Maine today when you drive around kind of the old backcountry roads. There's a farmhouse. There's probably a couple apple trees that might still be nearby. Um, John Bunker, who I know you've you've had on the program, you know, he's been tracking down these varieties of apple trees that have been here and grown for hundreds of years and grafted. And so there's a very rich agricultural tradition in Maine, in New England, of small farmsteads that were producing food for the family that lived there and probably for their local community and probably were pretty diversified. So had some dairy, had some livestock, were growing some crops, certainly were growing, you know, hay and feed for their animals, were growing some fruit trees and and had, you know, vegetables. So the highest point of uh, agricultural production in terms of land usage in Maine was actually around the Civil War, so just before the Civil War. And since then, in Maine, we've seen a steady decline in the number of farms and the number of acres in farm management. So this is also why, you know, when you wander around the main woods, you're likely to run into a stone wall. Well, that was probably a farm that a forest has <laughs> grown up around and taken over as that farmer or that farm moved away from farming. And then I think the consolidation piece that we were talking about earlier in Ohio, that's the same story everywhere across agricultural production. And so I think Maine used to be the breadbasket of New England in the 1800s and early 1900s and all the way through mid-1950s. There were canneries, there were processors, um, we were shipping, we were one of the largest apple producers, um, certainly blueberries, the fisheries have always been a, a big part of the food system here. And being able to can or add value to that, make something shelf stable, and then ship it to another part of the country to help feed people has had long been the story of agricultural production here in Maine. But through the 50s through the 70s, we see all the canneries disappear as production moves out west. You know, post-World War II, we see a big shift in agricultural production 
towards the Western states, uh, towards larger farms, uh, more commodity production. And this is around the same time of kind of this green revolution ideology of using fertilizers and chemical inputs and really growing at a mar- much larger scale. So so where you maybe used to have to have all of your inputs coming from the farm, you know, the fertilizer was coming from the dairy cows or the livestock that you might have had, that things were at a smaller scale because you had to manage your inputs that were going into that. We see chemical manufacturers changing course after World War II to get into providing chemical production for agriculture, fertilize, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. We see the tractor become a very widespread tool that's being used so farmers can farm on larger acreage. And we see food science changing at this time too. So when you think about the 50s, And the sort of convenience packaged food cooking that starts to come into vogue, right? Like more shelf-stable foods. Maybe you only have to add water now to make a cake instead of going and getting your wheat and your sugar and, you know, all the ingredients. So the food industry really takes off from a packaged food perspective. The technology that comes out of World War II really changes the nature and the landscape of agricultural production and of what food is actually now going to end up on our plates. You know, we, we search for this ephemeral spirit of Maine. And it strikes me that uh, metaphor I use often is the sort of the arc thinking like an island. Uh, and Maine is in, in effect a kind of island the way it's cut off from the rest of New England in its, in its history. And I also look out at, at all those farms historically and think of uh, archipelago, that there were just hundreds and hundreds of little islands of independent families. They were subsisting. They were also aggregating and they were also creating a kind of market-driven process for sustainability that made us the breadbasket of New England. But then all that goes awry. And it, it challenges, it does two things. One, it dislocates. And it also changes the expertise required, and I would assume the sense of risk and commitment for the ones that stay behind and and go with the the aggregation and the expansion and the, the, the arrival of fertilizers and mechanical aids and all the rest of it. Did our production go down? Did we lose the breadbasket role as a result of this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that dislocation that you're talking about, the displacement of people and resources over time, as you look at the population changes in Maine over time, right, after these big events. So the Civil War being a really big one that we hear about historically, right, as the soldiers went off to other parts. Actually, it's been interesting to trace some of my family history because even though I didn't grow up in Maine, I'm finding that I have a lot of roots in Maine from the 1700s and early 1800s and even later. And, and you know, there's this kind of mythology of, well, all these guys went off to fight in the Civil War and they saw other parts of the country and they said, hey, the farmland looks really great over there. What am I doing trying to cultivate this rocky, acidic, thin soil in Maine when I can go to the Midwest and have a much bigger farm, uh, you know, and obviously there's so much wrapped up in Manifest Destiny and westward expansion and federal government subsidies for 
native land dispossession and handing that over to farmer. You know, so there's there's a lot complicated with that. But I think Maine has been part of that story of people moving after those big world and country changing kind of events and political dynamics. And so we see that after World War II as well, right, of this shift in change of how and where people want to spend their time. And just like I couldn't wait to get out of my rural community, I think that is the story of a lot of people. And still today, you know, I hear this today of kids growing up in somewhere in rural Maine do not, they're like, how do I get out of here? There's nothing here for me. But at the same time, and and talking about the spirit of Maine, there is this resurgence in interest and, and there have been these movements throughout history of going back to the land as well. And Maine and, and Mafka, the founding of Mafka, is one of those movements, one of those timeframes. But how it's changed agriculture in Maine, you know, yes, we did decline in production after the 50s. We're no longer the breadbasket of New England moving into the 70s and 80s. The same sort of farm consolidation happened here where people were still farming. We see in Aroostook County, for example, a lot of those farms, there might be the same number of acreage of potatoes or other crops that are being grown. And dairy is another one. You, you know, you look at this, there may be the same amount of acreage in production, but it's owned by fewer and fewer farms because of the economics of it. You know, when you think about the, the, the impact of war, how that affected primarily the export of our men, mm. male population, they went away. And some of them went away and stayed someplace else and many of them died. It's a kind of dispiriting vector, sort of in the name of progress, in some place there's regress. Mm. But if you've lost the market and you've lost your farming population and your families are are dispirited and disinclined, you're at a nadir. Mm -hmm. You're at a point where it seems to be part of the culture that has been uh, either de facto rejected or and quickly forgotten in some ways. So let's take that melodramatic moment <laughs> and enter Mafka. Why? How? You know, to continue on that historical story piece of it, when we see this shift in agricultural production towards synthetic chemicals, both used in the production but then also in our food, And we also, at the same time, in the 60s, start to learn about the impacts of some of these chemicals. Think about Rachel Carson, some of the other writing and information that's starting to come out about that time in the 60s of what is the impact? What are we doing to our environment? But then what is that doing to us? And so I attribute the Back to the Land movement to a few things Right, of the back to the land movement of the late 60s and 70s. Certainly, it was a cultural protest movement coming out of another war, Vietnam War, right? Like we've got another cultural moment that people are reacting to. It's happening at a moment in time that's in relationship to that cultural moment, but also to the food system. And it's the organic movement is really a protest movement against synthetic chemical pesticides and fertilizers, right? And the and the impact that those are having at that time, and we've learned way more, you know, in the last 50 years than what we even knew in the 60s and 70s, but the impact on 
our health and the ecosystems that we are in. Just for one minute, go back to that connection. Can you document that connection? I'm looking out of the studio window and there's a Helen Nearing poster. Mm -hmm. Can you document a connection between the Nearings, for example, who were credited with much of the beginning of the Back to the Land movement in Maine, to a specific experience historically in which they were objecting to what you're talking about in terms of the chemicals and the and that whole approach to to farming? It is all connected. I mean, the Nearings are certainly, and, and they were even part of a protest movement before the Vietnam War, right? But their book was picked up in that cultural moment by people that were really looking at counterculture. How can we live a different way? How can we live in peace with each other in the land with our neighbors? How can we live more simply this idea of closer to the land, back to the land, getting our hands dirty, being a part of that food production. But, you know, we also see things like Francis Moore LaPay's Diet for a Small Planet. This was in the 70s, maybe a little after that initial wave of um, the first back to the landers in, in the late 60s. But we have the oil crisis of the 70s and people starting to think about sustainability and fossil fuel production and how do you live Sustainably, how can you get away from fossil fuels? We have the first solar panels on the White House, right? Like there's there's an environmental movement that is burgeoning around the same time. And so can we document it? Yes, absolutely. I think the people, the founders of MAFCA 50 years ago when MAFCA was founded as a peer-to-peer information sharing group about how to grow food organically because – There weren't a lot of resources for people at that time, so they were really relying on each other to share information and practices and then books and things that they were reading from other people. But when you talk to that founding generation, they did come here because of the nearings or they did come here because they wanted to show that things could be done a different way. I think there was a lot of idealism around what it could look like. Certainly there were other experiments in community idealism, communes and other things happening around that time too. And I think almost everybody who was part of MAFCA when it was founded in 1971 could probably directly trace their kind of aha moment or why they were here, why they were interested in this to some piece of that direct cultural momentum that was happening. MAFCA is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Let's go back to that moment with the actual founding. Um, How did that happen and when, how did it become official? What were the first goals and objectives? The Nearings have been part of it since the beginning and a few other folks. And the origin story is that a cooperative extension agent had been getting a lot of calls and interest in what is this organic farming and how do I do it? And there were people that were coming here who wanted information on how to do that. And basically, he hosted a gathering initially in 1971 that was just a meeting for folks who were interested in growing organically. And from there, that network of individuals kind of grew. So MAFCA, a couple years later, officially became, you know, an incorporated nonprofit. But it was really a community of folks who were interested in sharing information about food production, organic food production, living sustainably, and cooperating with one another. So we do have this 
American vision mythology around kind of the the independent, sustainable family farm, and it can exist by itself, and it doesn't need any help or anyone from anything else. But we all know in reality, we need a lot of help from our neighbors, right? We need to be able to share tools and resources and knowledge, and we're all social creatures, and we need to be in community with one another. And so, I mean, I've heard a lot of stories of folks that came here with a lot of idealism and not a lot of skills. And if it weren't for their 80-year-old Yankee neighbors that bailed them out of their first winter <laughs> to make sure that they were, weren't going to freeze to death, right, exactly. that they had enough firewood, right. without that collaboration and cooperation of neighbors, we, people wouldn't have been able to, to really continue. Right. Uh, of course, that is the advantage of small small scale. In the city, you don't know your neighbors, and if mm-hmm. you do, you're afraid. But here, it's not the, not the same. At right. least you have this sort of baseline uh, sense of, of collaboration and survival. Um, one note on the cooperative extension, we didn't mention sort of the role of the land-grant college, University of Maine, as a, as a kind of I always get the sense that it's sort of separate, that the university is here, then there's this other thing called the the cooperative extension, and it's over here doing all sorts of things that actually have real purpose and real impact. Can you talk just a little bit about, about that? Sure. Well, cooperative extension is wonderful, and I cannot say enough great things about cooperative extension generally and anybody who's ever worked with them or utilized them knows what a wonderful resource they are and the similar pattern of history of looking at especially related to the wars what the the federal and then state investments in land grant universities really acknowledging that in order to have a country that could thrive economically we had to have a well-fed population, whether that was healthy enough to serve in the military. I think we see that after World War II, again, as part of the focus on nutrition and feeding people. And we see things like the school lunch program and more food assistance programs to make sure people have enough food. But in the 1800s, we see this huge federal investment in land grant, colleges, universities, cooperative extension, outreach, investment in agricultural production in every state that had agricultural production at that time in order to further, you know, agriculture. So every county had a an extension agent, right, or multiple extension agents that were there to help the farmers to bring them the best information, the newest information. And that's still the case today. You know, we have but the agricultural colleges and systems over time, just as we've seen the consolidation of farms, you know, we also see the consolidation and the corporatization of the intellectual property around food and agricultural systems. So, so uh, be- as universities um, have been, you know, starved of their budgets for how to do independent research that's really for all of our benefit, we see corporate entities, you know, taking over that research for private profit. Um, and today, I think we see, and I think, you know, the university folks that are involved with this would be the first to say they wish it wasn't so, but the financial reality is that there has to be a lot of 
private-public partnership around agricultural research that's funded, you know, in part, and the intellectual property of that is going to belong to the corporation that's involved in that because that's the only way they can get their research funded. And so, um, you know, there's a there are th- certainly larger themes here around what is in for the public benefit and for things that we need that are critical to our life, like food, you know, like clean water, like a clean and healthy environment, you know, who, who and how can we um, responsibly steward those items so that they can remain for public benefit and that um, we can invest in things in a way, whether it's our cooperative extension or it's our, you know, agricultural production and investment. Like we, we should all have a self-interest in that being here for all of us for many generations to come and not be left up to corporate consolidation of a handful of companies that have profit as their bottom line motive and not, right. you know, feeding us well. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, broadcast the first Friday of every month here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM, streaming online and archived at WERU.org and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Sarah Alexander, Executive Director of the Maine Farmers and Gardeners Association. We are discussing the history of agriculture in Maine, its rich tradition, ups and downs, declines and renewals, and how farming has helped to shape the spirit of Maine. So here's little Mofka. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, a group of good, well-intended folk, the surviving farmers on the one hand and well-intended new farmers on the other. What was the first uh, success that Mofka had in terms of building its its identity and its uh, and its utility? Well, I think a couple of things in the 70s happened that set us apart and that made Mofka a, a leader within this broader movement that was burgeoning as well. That was information sharing. So Tim Nason, who's who was the longest-serving Mafka employee, who was the first employee of Mafka, just retired a couple of years ago. He started the newspaper, the Maine Organic Farmer and Gardener newspaper, which has been published for 50 years. And that was about getting information out to people to share that information. And so that really helped spread the word and the net, really create a network of information sharing around Mafka. And then we created a system of organic certification. So setting standards for what it, what does it mean to be organic and um, what can you use? What can you not use? What does it benefit? What does it matter if you're organic or not organic? And so in the seventies, Mofka was um, one of the first groups in 1972, I believe it was, we had our first set of standards for organic production and Mofka wasn't, certifying at that time, but basically said, if you want to say you're organic, here are the rules that you have to follow. Then young woman who was very interested in farming, who now we know as Representative Shelley Pingree um, from Maine's first congressional district in the mid-70s, she became Mafka's first apprentice, apprenticing on an organic farm in the Mid-Coast. And so she started the apprenticeship program, 
which was to formally have this mentorship and this education and knowledge sharing between an established farmer and somebody who wanted to learn um, and get that experience. And so that apprenticeship and that training of new farmers has really been a part of Mafka's ethos since, since almost the very beginning. And then the other big thing that happened in the 70s was Mafka, like every organization, needed to raise some money as they started to have staff and they had costs associated with the newspaper and other things. And they said, you know what would be a good way to raise some money is we should throw a big festival and charge people an entrance and we should have it align with our values of organic food production and sustainability. And so they put on the first Common Ground Country Fair in 1977 and they expected a thousand people to come and 10,000 people came. And, you know, it was a wild success and uh, decided they would do that again. <laughs> and now the, the fair isn't quite 50 years old, but it will have its 50th anniversary in a few years from now. And I think as we've, if anybody that's been to the Common Ground Country Fair, you get that feeling of community and possibility of what we can accomplish when we come together um, when we do put our values at the forefront of what we're trying to to do or create or leave in this world, that was a real defining moment, you know, and it goes on and on and on. We, you know, we, we have a whole beautiful timeline on our website that if folks are interested, you can see major highlights from the last 50 years. But right from the beginning, you know, we were also doing policy advocacy and trying to help pass laws in the state of Maine to limit the exposure of toxic pesticides. We hired Eric Seidman in the 80s as our first, what we called our organic extension agent. So he exclusively was crop specialist, you know, PhD agronomist who could provide technical assistance for organic production exclusively. And so, you know, he would go out and help everybody on their farm deal with whatever issue that they were addressing in an organic manner. And, you know, we were one of the only groups um, in the country, certainly in other states, there were similar groups that were bubbling up around the same time thinking about the same types of things. But the evolution of MAFCA in Maine has led us to be the oldest and largest statewide organic organization of our type um, in the country. We have some very innovative farms here in Maine that are really leaning into no-till intensive production, you know, climate smart production. How do we address the coming challenges that we're facing? And we have some innovative, smart folks here in Maine that are, are figuring out how we can do that. So um, here you are, 50th anniversary, very successful fair this year, I think. Yeah, we had 64,000 people come through this year. Well, there you go. That's not a bad exponential increase, is it? It didn't seem huge, but it did seem as if it had no more place to grow. <laughs> yes, we are very fortunate to have a beautiful campus in Unity, Maine, and we have over 300 acres. We have our central education building and campus, and then we maintain a number of hay fields that really are used to park all the cars during the fair because 64,000 people come in a lot of different vehicles. The permanent campus that we're at was acquired with the intention that it would be a fairgrounds for the Common Ground Country Fair. And we really have maxed out and utilized 
the full land base for the event that we have today. And we've done a great job of improving a lot of systems over the years. And so 64,000 doesn't feel overwhelming or unmanageable, but it is a lot of people. And, you know, it would be hard to see without some major changes, you know, how how we could have 75,000 people there. That would that that would be a big leap that would feel a little tricky. Well, it has all the elements of sort of the predictable conventional county fair with the animals, pavilions, and all the rest of it. But then it also has your it has the political tent, and it has experts talking to, to people about beekeeping or whatever it may be. I noticed between the, the this time and the last time I went, those tents were full all day long. Yes. There were many times when you would go in there, there'd be nobody there, you'd sit down because you didn't have any other place to sit. But now there was no place to sit there because people were listening and learning. Yeah, people are really engaged more than ever. You know, we have a lot of people that reevaluated a lot of things in their life over the last few years. So we've seen a lot of interest in the programs and a lot of stuff is online now. We have more people than ever that are participating in our workshops. I mean, we have workshops on just about every topic from growing your first organic garden to bringing back an old orchard and everything in between, right? You want to know how to raise chickens or you want to know how to live lighter on your homestead. We've got workshops related to that. And the fair is obviously the biggest educational event that we do. There are over 700 workshops that happen at the fair, and those talks are more well-attended than ever before. So I mentioned Eric being the first organic extension agent, but we provide a number of programs directly to farmers of all sorts, anybody who's interested in using organic production methods. So they do not have to be certified organic, but we have a team of nine staff now. So we went from one in the 80s to nine staff now that are providing direct technical assistance to farmers on every topic from you know, business and marketing to their pest and livestock production or, you know, whatever their management techniques are that are specifically needed for their farm. And this weekend, actually, we're having our Farmer to Farmer conference. And um, that's our annual event where we're just bringing, you know, commercial farmers together. It's sort of like the educational parts of the fair just for farmers. And we'll have over 250 farmers there from Maine that are there to, again, learn, share with each other what they're seeing and their experiences, and then have that social connection as well. One of the reasons that that we have such a strong farming community here in Maine is because MAFCA over the last 50 years has been able to create a social network of our farmers to create the resiliency that's needed. I mean, farming is hard. (laughs) Anybody who does farming knows how hard it is, not just physically and emotionally, but financially. I mean, the economics of it are extremely challenging, even for folks who are doing everything right, because of those same overarching big picture food system issues, right? Right now, 90% of the food that is sold in Maine comes from out of state. And a lot of that is going into our commercial grocery stores where most people buy their food, you know, Hannaford, Shaw's, and most farmers cannot even get into those locations. So just the access to, to the markets is a difficult piece in and of itself. And then even if farmers can get to a scale where they can access those markets, let's say we have somebody who's growing bulk wholesale organic carrots, beautiful, amazing product. 
has done everything right to get them into the packaging and the format and the size and all the things that a commercial grocery store wants. And his cost of production is higher than the cost of production for organic carrots from California, the local supermarket, because again, their incentive is that bottom line profit. They're choosing carrots from California, organic carrots from California over the organic main grown carrots that they could have a supply of year round. And that's the kind of thing that we really need to change to have resiliency in our food system to have the ability to feed ourselves. Remember a few years ago when the store shelves were empty? (laughs) So the just-in-time globalized food system is not resilient. It's very fragile. We see this through, you know, distribution and even weather pattern changes that we're seeing with climate change. You know, there are certain products that are not going to be available. It really is in our best interest across multiple levels related to climate change, but also food security, that we increase the food production here in Maine and that we do that in a way that is sequestering carbon, that is building healthy soil, that is helping our ecosystems, that, that's not further degrading our communities and our economy. It does ask us to, to invent, though. I mean, the CSAs are exploding, the, the farmer's market, farm drop. Uh, these are kind of invented new processes. Uh, specialty markets mm-hmm. where suddenly now all the produce is local produce, yep. et cetera. Uh, that's all part of the quality of life, which Absolutely. is part of the spirit of Maine. I mean, people are moving here because of mm-hmm. that authenticity. I can't avoid PFAS. Mm-hmm. What, what What is happening there? Yeah, so PFAS are Per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, it's an acronym that is class of chemicals. There are over 9,000 of these chemicals, and they're also known as forever chemicals because they contain a fluorinated carbon, which is very strong and means it doesn't really break down over time in the environment. Teflon is probably the best-known version of everyday consumer products. It's in every household, right? Our couches, our carpets, our clothing, our boots, our cookware, our personal care products, it gets into the waste system. And then it's when it's applied to agricultural lands, it does not break down. It stays in the soil. If folks haven't heard of this, aren't familiar with it, um, we do have a lot of background information on our website and education. But the short story of what is happening with PFAS is that here in Maine, we have actually started to look at potential agricultural contamination of PFAS chemicals from the spreading of sludge on farm fields over the last many decades. This actually is, interestingly enough, something that that MOFCA and sort of the organic movement has always fought against. In the 80s, when this was first, 70s and 80s, when this was first coming up, there was major concern around heavy metals and other bacteria and pathogens. Nobody really knew about PFAS, even though it was in the waste system, even at that time. And so it's never been allowed to be used in organic production. However, it does move. So it will move into the water system and it will contaminate our waterways. It will move up into the plant. These chemicals are never destroyed. They just move through different parts of the system. So it gets into the plant and then we eat it and it's in us. And eventually we will eliminate it from our body. But the human impact of this is related to certain types of cancer, immune suppression, low birth weight, pregnancy issues. So the list goes on and on and on. The chemical itself 
doesn't allow things to stick to it. It's grease resistant, heat resistant. And so it's like in fast food wrappers and packaging and paper plates and all sorts of things. But is it necessary? No. We could have all these same products without the PFAS chemicals. And what is the impact to us and our environment? We all have PFAS in our bodies now, some of us more than others. And it's impacting our ecosystems. It's in the fish, in Fairfield, which has been one of the hot spots where PFAS has been found. There are do not eat advisories for the deer, for the turkey. You know, So the wildlife, the ecosystems are impacted. The communities that are impacted from hunting and fishing are indigenous communities who rely on these foods. They're the ones who are, are potentially even more impacted. So it's a story of chemical and corporate usage and unregulation. Really, these chemicals were not regulated by the federal government. And then no information at the state and municipal level of these chemicals and their harms before they were spread on farm fields. And this has happened in every state throughout the country. And Maine, I applaud Maine because we are the first state to take action on this, to look at this, to have a robust response to it. And we have, as a state, mapped everywhere where a license was issued to spread biosolids. Those sites are all being systematically tested by the Department of Environmental Protection. MOFCA, in coordination with Maine Farmland Trust, set up an emergency fund for emergency relief and support to farmers who found impact from PFAS contamination on their farms um, so that we could help them get through because we want more farmers. (laughs) We want more land and production in farming in Maine. We don't want PFAS contamination to be the death sentence for any farm. And so, you know, we're committed to helping every farm get through this and find a viable and safe way forward. And we passed legislation to create a $60 million safety net in the state of Maine for farmers that are impacted. And now we're working to pass federal legislation that will create this same safety net in the upcoming farm bill with the help of the Maine congressional delegation. Tell me about what MOFCA is going to look like in 10 years? We've thought a lot about this, especially in the context of our 50th anniversary. And we've talked about a lot of history today. And so thinking what about what the food system looked like 50 years ago. And we like to think about, okay, it looks like today what it looks like because of MAFCA and the work that we've done for the last 50 years. Even though we've talked about some dark aspects of what we're dealing with in our food system and our agriculture, there are a lot of bright spots. When we look ahead to the future of what do we think our food system will look like when Mafka's been here another 50 years, 100 years in total, I think the future outlook is very positive. I'm very optimistic and hopeful. I think there's incredible opportunity. I think there's more awareness. I think there are more people that are interested in growing food. Maine is one of the few states in the country where the average age of farmers is going down. And that's because of all of the young people, and not even necessarily really young, but young compared to other farming states where the average age of farmers is in their 70s in some other states, right? So When we have new people that want to get into farming as a first career, as a second career, as a first-generation farmer, somebody whose family hasn't been involved in farming, or even people whose families, like those kids I grew up with in the 80s, 
they were part of farm families, couldn't wait to get away, and now realize they can come back to agriculture in a different way that's not around industrial production. We have more farms in Maine that are being run by women. We have one, you know, one of the highest rates in the country. We have new American farmers, indigenous farmers. We have a diversity in the landscape here in Maine. You know, we know we have more land base in Maine that could be brought into agricultural production, and we want to help feed New England. If I haven't shared this already, the New England Feeding New England report that's come out recently talks about what would it take for New England to have 30% of our calories produced within the region by 2030. And based on their data, it would take bringing a million more acres into agricultural production throughout the region. Maine is the largest state in New England that has the land base to actually bring into agricultural production. And we don't want to do that in an extractive way. We want to do that in a resilient way that's building sustainable ecosystems, economically viable farms that are adding value, you know, back to the canneries that we used to have and the value-added production, things that are leaving the state with more value added to them than just being produced here and exported somewhere else. And so there's incredible opportunity, I think, with the nexus of all of these issues that absolutely are struggles, things that we're struggling with as a society. But organic food production can create an opportunity that can really address all of these in a holistic way that's going to leave us better than we are now. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. My guest today has been Sarah Alexander, Executive Director of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Next month, I will be in conversation with Laureen Labar, curator at the Maine State Museum and author and editor of Maine Quilts, 250 Years of Comfort and Community, published by Down East Books. We will discuss quilting as craft, social encounter, and material documentation of community and culture. This has been Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.